Hi there, welcome to episode 101 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. It's really weird being in the hundreds, and actually I really appreciate all the messages you guys have sent saying congratulations for getting to 100. Probably should have got there quite a while ago, but, you know, I appreciate the uh, the uh, appreciation. We have a Patreon. Uh, it's up. I just haven't promoted it yet. The idea with the Patreon is that we're going to provide some extra content. So we're doing a show with Alan Greenfield called The Greenfield Files. That's its working title but I actually quite like it I think it sounds cool so I think we're going to stick to that and that's going to be once a month and it's only going to be available on our Patreon we're going to be recording the first episode of that shortly with Alan and the idea with that show is the first show will just be me and Alan talking about a subject I think we're talking about the shaver mystery in the first one so that should be good but then moving forward the idea with that is that if you're a Patreon member there's going to be a channel in our Discord which you'll also get access to as a Patreon member that allows you to leave questions for Alan and then we'll have like half the show will be uh, me and Alan talking about a subject and then the other half will be Alan answering all your questions or us both discussing your questions and that should be pretty fun I think a lot of people seem to really dig Mr Greenfield so that's a a nice little bit of bonus content there Um, obviously I've mentioned it already but you we're also going to have a discord so you can all talk to each other and as we're moving forward, we're going to be doing more video kind of stuff and more kind of, I don't know what you call it really, like documentary, researchy based stuff. So um, that will be a place for discussion about that as well. And, you know, getting involved maybe with some of the research and, you know, getting access to stuff that we haven't uh, put in the in the video that comes out on YouTube. And then I think what we might also do is put uh, like an extended version of the videos we make on the, for the Patreons as well, so that you'll get you know full access to less produced versions or cut down more detailed versions of of, of the videos. So, and I might do that as a podcast as well because there's always loads of cutoffs, what I call them, with the podcast. You know, like we'll record for two hours sometimes, but only release an hour and a half, uh, just because I don't like releasing massively long shows. Uh, but if, if people want that, we can start releasing those as well and another thing i was thinking of doing was going back to the archives we've been doing this for a long time and my skills have increased as an editor obviously over the years and i think i could probably go back and scrub some of those uh early episodes and make them sound a bit nicer um so maybe make that a patreon exclusive as well we've also got merchandise coming people have been asking us about t-shirts and stuff so we've got a really cool t-shirt coming designed by someone i won't announce it yet but it's designed by someone of note someone that i'm a big fan of and i'm really pleased that he said yes to designing our t-shirt so that's going to be coming up so yeah 2024 should be a interesting year i think for sitting now we've got a lot of interesting stuff on the way uh, a lot of stuff we've been doing for the last two years has been kind of leading up to this year in terms of content so i hate that word content there's something weird about it i don't like it but anyway it, it, it seems suitable in this case i suppose but anyway anyway you probably don't want to hear me waffling on about this but if you are interested in the patreon uh we're going to be i'll release the the url for it soon obviously at the moment the only thing that's up there is a discord so i really want to have the alan greenfield show recorded so there's something that, you know straight away for you uh to you know get for your money essentially but oh and another thing we're going to be doing is we're going to be releasing the episodes earlier obviously so you'll get them a day or two before and we might even do some sitting now episodes that are patreon exclusive as well i'm not sure yet because we've i've been looking at our calendar and we've got so much stuff that i think we've actually got too much to release 
on the usual uh, schedule. So, yeah. So there's uh, there's also possibly another show coming as well, like a series, is what we're calling it, like a limited limited event series, like Twin Peaks season three, uh, where we're, we have a a subject that we're going to cover with multiple guests and do a bit of research on. So yeah, there's there's tons and tons of stuff coming up, and it's you know it's going to be well worth your time and money. I think we're going to go for like five dollars a month. That seems pretty reasonable. It's you know it's pretty cheap. And, uh, you know, maybe in the future we'll add higher tiers for, you know, other types of things. But I think $5 out of the, out of the gate is a good a good amount. And, you, you know, and we'll provide content worthy of that. <laughs> probably more, you know, worth more than that. So, yeah, it should be a good deal. I don't like people feeling like they're, uh, you know, out of pocket with anything really. So, anyway, you're not here to hear me waffle on about that sort of thing. This week, belated episode, this came out on YouTube last week, but I stupidly forgot to record the intro. You know, Christmas and all that got in the way. That's my excuse. So what I might do is release this one and episode 102 in the same week. Or, I don't know, I'll figure it out so that we're back in sync again. <laughs> anyway, this week we're talking to my co-host on The Mo Zone, uh, Mr. David B. Metcalf. We're kind of off, off mic we like to talk about kind of strange municipal kind of groups so things like where governments have funded research into the occult or research into you know paranormal type stuff and that group has then kind of gone dark as it were so the idea of municipal well, I called it municipal magic in an episode of the Mozone what I meant by that was it's something with occult or paranormal beginnings that gets funded by the government and becomes its own kind of municipal thing where it kind of spins off and I'm trying to think of some examples off the top of my head so like the psychic research program in america it kind of took on a life of its own it didn't it, it didn't feel like a government research project you could say things like the monroe institute who we talk about in this episode and in russia you've obviously got all the kozarev stuff and the uh, uh the cosmonauts although there's you know a caveat to that but yeah so this episode's pretty fun it's me and david metcalf talking about some some interesting municipal paranormal and occult groups i hope you enjoy oh yeah and before we go don't forget to subscribe on the youtube channel follow us on instagram blah 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 at sitting now on everything except tiktok which is at sitting now official Hey, David Metcalf, uh, thanks so much for giving us some of your time. Uh, could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? Sure. Um, so I've been writing publicly since about 2009, 2010 um, on subjects related to esotericism, popular occultism, um, parapsychology, kind of from a media studies angle. Um, I spent some time at uh, Reality Sandwich when it was under... Daniel Pinchbeck and Kim Jordan doing a uh, series called Psy in the News, which was looking at where parapsychology kind of bridged into contemporary issues and news. Um, and uh, I'm currently the scholar in virtual residence at the Windbridge Institute, um, which is a, an organization out of Arizona that looks at mediumship um, after death communications um, and applied parapsychology, um, and so that's kind of a. And I've I've done studies on uh, 
long-term study on Santa Muerta, which is a, uh, a Mexican uh, devotional tradition uh, focusing on Saint Death, um, where I worked with um, the, a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, Andrew Chestnut, who was kind of one of the, the early uh, English-speaking academics to look at, at Santa Muerta. Um, I've co-authored papers with Diana Pasalka, uh, who wrote American Cosmic. Um, so I've just sort of danced between being just a, a regular sort of weirdo on the internet and actually liaisoning with scholars and, and academics and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Talking about weird things. What's a virtual scholar? Uh, <laughs> virtual scholar in residence, right? In residence, right. So I'm the scholar in residence. I just happen not to be in Arizona. <laughs> and oh, not, yeah. I'm not taking up residence uh, at, the, at the Windbridge facilities. I was so. just imagining like a Star Wars thing where you'll, you you appear like a hologram. <laughs> I mean, that'd be fantastic. I, that'd be, yeah. yeah. I'll talk to them. Mark, Mark Bacuzzi, uh, one of the co-founders of Windbridge, is very much into um, SciTech. Uh-huh. and technology in that uh and he builds you know apps and, and little machines uh one of his uh, one of his recent ones which was really fun was the what do you call it? well it named itself the throne of the sphinx mm-hmm. but um basically what he did was he kind of uh to do a test on uh non-human intelligence influence or well it became a test of non-human intelligence influencing uh or potentially influencing something like a chat program, right? So it's kind of like Joe Matheny's uh, Meta Machine, um, but just really pared down and focused. He didn't have it connected to the net. He had it connected to uh, a proprietary database that he had created for it to, to run its, its text prompts on that. Um, but they've done a lot of experience with mediumship doing like triple blind and quadruple blind tests to see if there's any better, you know, verifiable information that's passed during a mediumship uh, mm. event, right, or, or session. And so he took some of that research and then said, well, what if the, you know, what if these effects can be seen in something like ChatGPT, right? Mm. And so he created this thing, which then uh, became kind of like a um, an interesting, you know, and this is, it's, it's more of an art project, right, than, than experiment. So people listening, like, don't jump on them being like, oh, that's stupid, that it's not real, they're not, you know, Mark knows that this is, it's more of a game that he's playing with this experiment, right? Um, but uh, it was basically this, uh, a chatbot that you can ask questions to, um, but when you asked it, you know, like, where do you come from, it said, like, from a star star outside of Orion or something like that in the area of Orion. And they asked it what its name was. And it said the throne of the Sphinx, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so, it, and it was giving, you know, it, it did start giving answers that were actually fairly interesting, especially in the, in studying mediumship, right? The, the question of what exactly is a medium doing? Mm-hmm. Cause there's been, you know, there's been fMRI studies, there's been EKG studies, hooked people up to machines and tested like what is neuro what's the neurophysiology that's happening when someone's in a mediumistic state and there is a different there is a different kind of thing going on in the brain Mm. Uh, and with the the brainwave synchronization and that kind of thing there are there are marked differences from the mediumistic state to normal kind of consciousness state and so um but what are we what are we seeing with that right like where is this information coming from is it actually coming from some discarnate entity is it you know subconscious processing that's just in this state happens to then align with 
the questions in a way that's meaningful or whatever? Are we projecting meaning onto the thing? And one of the interesting things with this was, was that even knowing that it's a chatbot, you know, hooked up to random number generators that's, that's doing its thing, um, it was giving coherent responses in an interesting way. Mm. Um, and then it becomes a question of, you know, again, how much overlay then in every form of communication that we do in every, in every instance where we're perceiving something, you really start to see like, wow, you know, this question of meaning and this question of meaning in an answer uh, is a lot more complex mm. because, you know, you know that this thing is just a machine learning thing taken through, you know, options and, uh, you know, and then fed through the random number generator. So that's randomized and all of that. But you're getting these coherent responses that also seem to lead towards something more, right? Like a deeper meaning. Mm. Um, and, and because you're thinking of it in, in a, a sense of, you know, kind of, is this, a, a, is this machine a medium for some other intelligence to give me answers? you start to then impart meaning on it. And it, one of the things that I did when he was showing me some of the, the responses in that was to go back to the channeling literature, you know, which is extensive mm-hmm. and, and looking like, does this compare to like what people who are channeling things? Is this, is this similar? And it was, it was very similar to the answers that they would give, you know, and the, he hadn't, so the database was not filled with channel literature, you know? And so it's really interesting that those things correspond. You know, yeah, that's yeah, so. interesting. Yeah, yeah. that's kind of fascinating. I was—I uh, remember there was um, the, the transcendental meditation people did a thing where they sort of analyzed the brain patterns of people mm-hmm. whilst they were meditating, yeah. and they yeah. also threw up uh, like a, something was happening in the brain. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can't remember if that was a private study though, or if it was an actual. You know, well, Harvard's was... done Harvard's done studies with a, a lot of uh, Tibetan practitioners. Oh. Um, Vajrayana practitioners. So, um, and I think Princeton too. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly. I know Harvard has, but there's there's others as well um, that have done that. Yeah, they've you know they've and it's been for a long time. I mean, like since the 50s and that they've been hooking up meditators to to various you know ways to measure the physiology of what's going on or the the neurophysiology of what's going on. Um, and being able to kind of get a sense of what the meditative state is versus, you know, other states. Like I was just reading about um, uh, an EEG study on um, snake handlers, right? So uh, holiness snake handlers from, I think this was somebody from West Virginia. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly, but this is a study in the 50s where they, uh, they hooked up the pastor for this holiness congregation um, and, you know, he had done the fasting preparation and everything to get into what they call the anointed state. And so they, you know, allowed him to get into that state and then measured the, the brain activity. Then again, it was a different, you know, it was different than waking consciousness. It was not the same kind of thing. What was interesting about the snake handler, though, was and that study was that um, it was different than the meditative state. So it wasn't the same kind of stuff they were getting off people who were practicing zazen or you know uh, different sort of mindfulness techniques and that. Um, it wasn't similar to the waking state, but it also wasn't something that should have necessarily produced the uh, reported feelings of meaningfulness and, and the rest of it. And this was a study from the '50s, so I don't know what the you know what that data interpreted now would, would mean. You know, there may be probably 
there's way better ways to to look at that stuff now but it was just interesting yeah they've, so they've they've been doing those kind of studies for quite a long time yeah it's interesting it's um so one of the reasons we're doing this episode today is because the conversation we had on our other show which is the mode yeah. zone um where we we were talking about something called municipal magic which is yeah the title i gave it <laughs> which yeah, this is your, it... This is your your uh your vision your vision for, <laughs> for municipal magic yeah yeah so it's kind of like the the, the sort of we were talking about this earlier i had like two concepts i suppose that um that interest me and one is the idea of government interacting with um elements of the our world essentially the high strangeness kind of mm. world but also what happens to those groups once they become kind of funded it's like right. they become their own kind of municipality essentially they become their own kind of they seem, they seem to like self-regulate and sort of get forgotten a little bit by the uh the, the original government agency yeah. but yet, they're, yet they're still state sponsored so it's kind of it's that's kind of an interesting intersection for me to look at but <laughs> i think but uh yeah so it's kind of so that was kind of i guess the inspiration for it, it was just I, I just find that stuff fascinating i mean you can even say things like i mean i suppose they're loosely connected but things like number stations and things like that where you're not quite yeah. sure what they are and it feels almost feels like someone's forgotten about them and they're just there you know sort of living their yeah, own, I mean, their own lives <laughs> and they, they're sort of like they're they're like synchronicity generators and the culture mm. and like you know like they, they sort of draw in that that sort of creation of meaning around them yeah you know? and then, yeah the forgotten the forgottenness of the of the the funded uh projects is really interesting because you can that so much of this stuff you know whether it's the the government funded side programs from the cold war and that um you know they there's an initial interest you maybe it lasts for a decade maybe two decades money's put into it and then it slowly sort of dies out but then it goes into the culture and it becomes this new thing that like then you know re, you know recreates itself and and sort of continues on in the in the mind space and in the media you know um sort of living on and inspiring new new things and it, the it, number stations in particular at the moment are having a bit of a renaissance people are, are like hacking them now have you seen this like no. oh yeah oh, right. I see that no i did see that that was like in ukraine right like they did like uh they hacked a russian number station to didn't it like do a they did a graphic didn't they it was like a yeah graphic. so it's kind of like there's this whole subculture now where people have i, they, I can't remember the, the type of radio it's a, it's a uhf or vhf radio and you have to have a digital readout on it that shows like a waterfall of the signals. So you have this waterfall of constant noise, I guess. And when a signal appears, it draws a line um, down down this kind of spectrograph looking kind of uh, thing. And so what people figured out was that they could, if they played the right tones, they could create images, essentially. Oh, so, okay. yeah. so if you tuned into certain radio feeds and even number stations, people would broadcast on the same pattern as the, or the same signal uh, wavelength as the number right. stations and if you tune into them with these particular types of i think you have to have an iphone app as well i think there's some weird thing, way of doing it yeah so you have to send a signal from that there's an app you can buy I've, i watched a whole video on it it's really interesting but what's um fascinating is all these uh number stations um these kind of random people are sort of like trolling them almost now so if you go on to um certain number stations you'll hear additional sounds that kind of interfere with the um uh, there's one in russia called the buzzer i think it's called mm -hmm. where it just goes eh, 
eh, over and over again. And occasionally it will sort of broadcast a kind of sound. But so what they'll do is they'll deliberately kind of, I heard one thing where they just kept the buzzer going. So instead of it being eh, like a regular tone, it was just eh, <laughs> time. So it's just, there's like these kind of, I, I assume Ukrainians just fucking with the Russians yeah. essentially, yeah. like just messing with their uh, their signals. Because some people say that the buzzer in particular is like a, because it, it reaches so far, you can hear it here in the UK. If you have like fairly mediocre radio signal, uh, radio receivers, you can pick it up here. But a lot of people say it's like, if that stops, that's when the, you know, that one theory is that that, that could be them sending the missiles, you know, mm. the buzzer stops, that's like, oh, that's doomsday. Yeah. Kind of like, so I, I do get a bit worried that these, uh, these kind of hackers, these trolls might accident, you know, that would be an interesting way of triggering the world war. Yeah, like. just, <laughs> screw up a number station and it's all over. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So, um, I guess we should look at maybe list off some kind of examples of um, mm -hmm. of, of um, what we were terming municipal magic um, or municipal. But I mean, we won't talk about all of them. But we've we selected some to talk about today. But there's some. I don't know. Have you got any honourable mentions that we haven't uh, listed in there? Uh, I mean, there's a, yeah, there's so honourable mention would be. Uh, in the United States, the development of the executive sales culture um, through popular occultism. So Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, um, comes out of late 1900s, early 20th century popular occultism and uh, mesmerism and, and stuff like that in you know little books that you can mail order, so mail order magic kind of stuff. And um, it's really amazing to see that time period where it goes, you know, from how to, you know, psychically influence people and, you know, mental influence and that kind of thing. And then, like, you see this transition where all that stuff starts to kind of fade away and then you're getting, like, executive training, you know, and it's like, it's the same, it's the same kind of stuff, you know, um, at least the basics of it, you know, like the focus and awareness and, and focusing your awareness and, and the right attitude and the right projection of voice and your body carriage and all the rest of it. Like that was in, that was all coming out of popular occultism and kind of, a, uh, you know, in the United States and then developing into just corporate training, which is uh, so fascinating. And there's, you know, in the fifties the and sixties, you can still see elements where the book will ostensibly be on executive training or sales training, but it'll have a mention of J.B. Ryan, you know, and his, his ESP experiments, or it'll mention something like that. And so it's, uh, that, that to me is uh, just a fun kind of example of this stuff where almost like, almost the opposite, I guess, to what you're saying, where it sort of dies out, you know, like I guess the, the weirdness in that sense died out and then the techniques maintained while they were stripped of their, you know, their occult origins. I saw one recently, um, the government here had been investing in the NHS, our uh, National Health Service here, that had been investing in something called drama therapy. And drama therapy, to me, the way it was explained to me anyway, sounded like talismanic magic. <laughs> mm. It was like, there's exactly the same technique. So it was like, you kind of visualize certain things and then you create uh, like a, a physical object that represents the thing that you you've been visualizing it's like hang on a minute that's just, that's magic yeah, it's, like, yeah, exactly. it's like and it's been government sponsored and it's uh you know it's it's apparently very effective a friend of mine's doing it and it's he was explaining it to me and i was like 
you're explaining he even stopped himself he went hang on a minute (laughs) (laughs) i'm explaining magic aren't i I was like yeah you are (laughs) uh, it's really interesting when that kind of bleeds in doesn't it i mean Mm -hmm. even like you could even say i mean pseudoscience seems to be um bleeding into the nhs as well now as we have like acupuncture and you know all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff as well which it's interesting how governments seem to well, you know, these kind of municipal bodies seem to kind of uh, adopt this stuff wonder, eventually. So a question like that, which is which is UK specific, hmm. um, did that change after Charles became closer to either being king or became king? Or was that no. something that was kind of drifting in there? It was drifting you know, in there anyway, yeah. Prince Charles' uh, long history with, um, uh, you know, like John Michel, uh, um Keith Critchlow, um, a lot of the sacred geometry stuff, um, heavily influenced by perennialist philosophy mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of thinkers in that. And he's got, there's the, it was the Prince Charles School of Traditional Arts and now it's the King's School of Traditional Arts. But, you know, they train people in, in doing, you know, the mathematics to build a Gothic cathedral, you know, but it's, it's art stuff. So it's more of them like doing sacred geometry yeah, no, my partner was saying that he's building a, a town somewhere in the uk um and it's based on traditional architecture yeah, and kind of yeah. um it's very old you know he's trying to like maintain a, a version of england that's kind of i don't think particularly there anymore but he's, yeah well it was probably know. never there i mean that's the amazing like there was never a perennial philosophy there was never no, yeah. you know i mean this is a the, the interesting thing about the perennial philosophy is that like it's supposedly based in the past but it's it's always it's always contemporary and it's always leading towards a future that will never happen from a past that never happened mm. in a present that can't maintain the beauty of the perennial philosophy. So it's just this continual, you know, it's this this impossible ideal that uh, that gets pursued. You know, I wonder if he's going to do the same thing that Disney did. You know, like um, where he'll make it a sort of some kind of conditional thing for people to live there. Like mm. Disney Disney opened. I can't remember what it's called now. In Florida, they they created a town, a small town. Um, what's it called? I've been there. It's um, it's a bizarre place. It's like you know the beginning of uh, Blue Velvet, the David Lynch mm. film. Where <laughs> yeah, it's like that. that. It, you know, white picket fences. Um, yeah. it, and it, what is it called? It's going to drive me mad now. Anyway, I've been there a couple of times. It's quite nice to visit. Um, yeah. What ended up happening was you had to uh, maintain the houses a certain way, and there was like <laughs> almost an implicit kind of underlying disney kind of utopian philosophy built into the place mm-hmm. um and uh oh, what was it celebration that's what it's called it's called celebration oh, uh, wow. is, is the name of the uh um so, but what ended up happening was that there were murders and affairs and like <laughs> sleaze and scandal yeah. yeah and i think disney ended up dropping it in the end because it was just so ridden with scandal yeah. and kind of so <laughs> i wonder if the same thing might happen with prince or king charles's uh yeah it's um, it's really it's interesting i mean like he's he's got like the gardens and stuff which are really nice mm-hmm. but then it's weird for you know like here i'm in like a you know semi-rural georgia right like it's like 40 minutes outside of Athens, Georgia, which is where University of Georgia is. And mm. I go into a Walmart and you can get like the herbal essence shampoo with the like the royal seal that like has, you know, like the the herbs from, you know, the the King's Garden and stuff. And it's kind of like, it's a, I'm at Walmart, you know, like this is kind of, this is herbal essence shampoo. Like this is not like 
some you know homeopathic remedy for for yeah. what ails me like this is just consumerism some... always finds a way doesn't it yeah it's kind of like yeah it's <laughs> like the, the, the magic elixir that i'm quite looking for from king king charles so i think one of the biggest examples we could look at of municipal magic would be cosmism mm -hmm. um although we'll, we'll put an asterisk on that because yeah as, as we're discussing yeah 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 because yeah, there's a big uh a big um reveal i suppose that when, yeah. you, when you look a bit closer at it yeah. <laughs> um so i guess tell us a little bit about the kind of like historical background of it uh, of yeah. um, cosmism so cosmism sort of comes out um as the as the soviet idea is fomenting you know it's in the the 1900s um there's a guy fedorov who starts to kind of think about a future society and it has a it, it seems almost like an obsession with death and like loathing of death and this idea these kind of utopian ideas that were that were fermenting there and you know were growing and, and populating which would become the soviet union after you know bolshevik revolution you get all these kind of revolutionary movements and moments and, and things going on um and he, the, this utopian concept of humanity through technology, through industrialization, and through the growth of that, will become the arbiter of evolution, right? But in an apocalyptic sense. So you get the influence of the Russian uh, Orthodox ideas and the, the heavy kind of like Christian apocalypse. The, there was, you know, and that's another thing, like we, we look at those things now from kind of a very secular view or this time periods, right? But in the late 1800s or, you know, early 20th century, there was a, there was a heavy millennial bent. Um, you get the Seventh-day Adventists, you get um, uh, um, Peter Davidson in Georgia with the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor is writing books on the, the coming of the cosmic Christ. You get the Theosophical movement had a very apocalyptic bent at the time. So there's a sense that these things were changing, industrialization was coming in, you know, I mean, they really heavily coming in. And um, here's Fedorov thinking about this future state where through technology, uh, through industrialization, humanity would conquer death. But then further thing, and this is, it's, it's awesome because we don't, you know, at least for the most part, I think most people in the public don't think this way anymore. But if you go back and you read stuff from those, that time period, or even probably into like the 40s, people were still trained on logic and like rhetoric and that kind of thing. So you get these chain, these causal chains, right? So you have humanity using technology to become immortal, right? But then also the, the sort of intellectual offense of death itself, going back in time, to then you know, back in time in the sense of, of intellectually to gather the dust of all their ancestors, mm -hmm. which they then also reassemble so that every human that was ever born in the world can benefit from this future state of perfection, right? But then when you do that, logically, what do you have? You have a problem, right? Like you have overpopulation beyond which we, we can like really think of. So um, how do you fix that? Well, you go to space right? Like there's lots of room in space. And so then you go to space. And so his idea was that these immortal humans that had gathered the, the ancestors dust from all of humanity, 
in this revived sort of sense would then become this spacefaring sort of panspermic humanity that would go out and organize the entire universe, right? And it coming from a very sort of, uh, you know, Earth-centric, um, anthropocentric view that humanity was the, the height of evolution, future humanity would be the height of, of evolution, even more so, um, and sort of spread this throughout the cosmos. But the, the interesting thing with Fedorov is he was a librarian. <laughs> so he's, he's, just, he's sitting there dreaming up these ideas, you know, but um, which then now, you know, people listening who are familiar with transhumanism may recognize some of the ideas that, that are expressed there, right? So mm. it becomes, you know, it, it was an idea that sort of drifted through and uh, becomes what's known as now as Russian cosmism. And there were a number of figures that, that kind of, working in this utopian sense of, of human evolution into space and human evolution into being able to control, uh, you know, our genetics and, and our bodies, right? The, being able to reprogram the brain and, and do all that, like the complete and utter control of the human organism by this ideal human, you know, sense, right? Then being able to do that. And that idea carries through into the Soviet Union, even in times when um, it would go against what was considered proper Orthodox Soviet thought. I'm kind of struck there, actually, because I, I, I hadn't heard it explained that way in that sort of that, that string, I suppose. Mm. It kind of reminds me of Leary a little bit. Yeah. Leary. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, so that's so that's the interesting thing about the Russian Cosmos stuff is that um, you have these thinkers writing these things, right? And so when you're doing, where does Leary come in into this, right? Leary is, uh, he's an Ivy League professor. He's an Ivy League psychologist who's looking at what? He's looking at human organizations. He's looking at how the human individual is organized, right? Like how is our personality organized? How does that interact with society? How do these things, you know, he creates that, um, he created that, uh, the, uh, you know, checklist, I don't know what it, I don't, the, the actual word for it is, is escaping me, but he created a check, like a personality checklist, basically, mm. um, which was a personality profile. And so, you know, being able to map out these kind of profiles of personalities and stuff like that. But that kind of science sounds very Soviet, right? Like that's a very psycho-cybernetic way of looking at things. Mm. Um, it's a very industrialized way of looking at things. It's a very machine-based way of looking at the human mind, right? Leary doesn't have his breakthrough really until the LSD stuff, where it takes then this base of a very, you know, evolutionary, materialistic, neuropsychiatric version of humanity, which is the 1950s, that's what we had, coming from Pavlov, right, which is a Russian scientist. Um, taking that... And then LSD kicks it off into like this, whoa, okay, we're going to go to some wild places, right? We're going to like that, that changes the, the kind of drift of it. And it becomes this sort of cosmic vision, but it's coming out of this sort of Pavlovian. And this was, I mean, this is in the British, the British medical uh, journals. You look at them in the fifties and forties and that it's all very mechanic, like mechanistic, mm -hmm. right? Skinner box kind of stuff and Pavlov and, and just programming the brain as a physical thing right as a material object um and so the exchange between the soviet scientists and the, the scientists in the united states and, and europe and, and outside the soviet union and outside the, the communist bloc 
um, was one that was able to, to sort of exchange on this because by the time the by the time the Korean War comes around and the US and the UK and stuff start worrying about brainwashing and the ability of, of sort of Pavlovian reprogramming um, they're they're talking the same language right like because they're starting we need the mechanism for how that happens so that we can have the mechanisms for how not to do that and then hey maybe we can use some of it ourselves you know so there's this you know there's this exchange that like that goes through and it, when we talk about leary now you know the the current mediated leary is not the leary that came out of that conversation no, right? yeah but the, the actual leary comes out of a conversation about cybernetics about um and cybernetics is a conversation with the soviet concept of of controlling society and, and utopianism and stuff like that so yeah that's an interesting point it really does you know when you start to look at these other thinkers that were you know around you know sort of before then and coming into them you can start to see like oh okay this is where you know i mean the the, the psychic uh warfare program in the u.s was heavily influenced by the soviet ideas because it started it, it it got its funding sri got its funding because of worries about the soviets right mm -hmm. so you you're reacting to something you're reacting but the thing is you, you look at someone like fedorov that may have been talked about and that may have been fed in but there's the language barrier there's the cultural barriers right so you get a paper with somebody you know you get a russian paper that mentions fedorov you bring it to the United States, it goes through the CIA or whatever intelligence apparatus, it ends up in a scientist's desk as a memorandum, for this is what's going on in the Soviet Union. Is it really? You know, but then the, the United States people start to react to it, right? So then they yeah. start to theorize off of what these other thinkers were, who may, you know, it may have just been like, oh, well, this is a book that I read, right? And then it's quoted in a, in a scientific paper and this was kind of an interesting idea by the time it goes through language and, and government apparatuses and this is kind of the municipal magic thing right like mm. it gets officiated as this is an intelligence report and they mentioned federal and federal wants to create an immortal race that goes to space out of all of humanity then it becomes an idea that people are thinking about over here when it may have just been a, a passing thing in, in the ussr it makes you wonder how many other programs that we don't know about <laughs> exist out there. That's kind of interesting. Like yeah. ones that just got lost in the cracks a little bit. And uh, yeah. it's, uh, there must be like hundreds of them, maybe. Well, you got to get funding. You know, yeah, I mean, that's true. That's, yeah. that's really the thing. You got to get funding and you got to get the right people. Because if you don't have the right people for this stuff, like it's a mess. <laughs> like you can't yeah, like if you're going on a pioneering expedition into the unknown of, of weirdness, you know, and you... You know, it's either going to turn out to just be like nothing, or it's going to turn out to be like a heaven's gate, you know, craziness. You know. Yeah, and it's interesting to me as well how, because a lot of conspiracy theory used to be um, kind of almost anti the idea of com of cosmism, didn't it? And, but mm -hmm. whereas now, you could argue Elon Musk is kind of playing into that a little bit. And I, yeah. I, I saw I saw this video the other day of a con. It was a I don't know what they call them now. They used to be like Twitter hangouts, didn't they? Twitter hangouts where oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah, lots of various people could join a call, and there'd be like a. It was a. I think that was a reaction to another thing called Clubhouse that came out a few years earlier. Um, yeah, um, and um, but in that call was Elon Musk, Andrew Tate, and um, Alex Jones. And, oh, uh, that's great! You see, yeah, that's yeah, great. and Alex Jones is praising Elon Musk in this, yeah. um, and it's like the hypocrisy of that. The thing that 
really blew my mind about that was Jones has spent years and years and years saying, oh, they want to put chips in your head. Uh, and, you know, uh, they're, they're all transhumanists. They're all, you know, oh, all this kind of stuff. And he's there praising yeah. Elon Musk as the savior of the world. And it's like, hang on a second. What, when did conspiracy theorists become yeah. kind of like cheerleaders for this kind of stuff? They were like, it was the opposite. Surely. <laughs> well, I mean, conspiracy theorists like Jones become that when they are next to a billionaire. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, if he's if he's got an open door with Elon Musk, that man is not going to be arguing, especially when he's got the court fees he's got for the uh, Sandy Hook stuff and all that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going to be cozy enough to anybody he can that could possibly foot a bill for something. You know? Yeah, yeah. But it's funny how they've all they're all. I mean, and Musk is kind of praising Alex Jones in it as well. You're like, oh, okay, this is like a weird feedback loop happening now between these like. Yeah, yeah what should be opposing things are kind of like, yeah, it's strange. It's yeah. very strange. Really bizarre. Okay, so we've spoken about Federov. What about, uh, right, we're going to murder some names tonight. Yeah, yeah, this we are. <laughs> I, was, gonna, yeah, I told Ken yeah. earlier that um, in, in, it's easy to read the names and to read through stuff, and you're like, oh, yeah, I understand all this stuff. Then you go to actually talk about it, and <laughs> yeah. I personally realized how American I am. Like, the <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm, I'm really American, you know, I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to say any of these names. I've managed to blag my way through 100 episodes of sitting now mispronouncing <laughs> names. So <laughs> it's, uh, but this is, it's Constantine. Oh, here we go. Is yeah. Zilkovs. I'm not sure how you. Maybe we. I flash it up on the screen how to how to uh, yeah. in the edit. Um, Siolkovsky, I would say. Yeah, Siolkovsky. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. he he was interested heavily in space colonization. So he's the kind yeah. of um, again. There's a Leary cross crossover there as well. But because mm-hmm. uh, um, Leary later on became obsessed with, uh, he was more interested in production Smart. in space, wasn't he? Was it? He was interested in it. It was cheaper and easier to produce things in space you know like well yeah, um, and he also yeah. Saw, i mean there was the whole uh the starseed transmission in the, the late 60s and that um which corresponded to a bunch i mean this this area is really this is a really interesting thread of this I mean, the municipal magic idea is a really fruitful field to look in because there's a lot of stuff that gets covered up by the way that we've sort of churned through these cultural mm. figures and, and you know essentially cultural myths and, and legends um, but there's there's other there's other narratives that are there, you know, um, and the starseed transmission that that he reports from Folsom Prison just mm-hmm. is awesome. Um, yeah. Where he had this you know transmission from uh, the the comic Kohotek uh, that you know he had this vision of of, of the the world egg he, you know Earth cracking open and, and humanity spreading out into the cosmos, mm. you know. Um, yeah, and so uh, Constantine, I'm just going to use his first yeah, name. Yeah, she's his first name. Yeah, yeah. it's a lot easier. <laughs> considered, yeah. considered essentially kind of like the, the, the grandfather of rocketry uh, in the contemporary sense. He was in, his work was an influence on Oberth and Vernon von, uh, von Braun and, and a lot of the early folks that were working on, on rocketry and that. And it's interesting because he's coming out of a time period where this wasn't, you know, this is Jules Verne ideas, you know, I mean, this was not like stuff that you could actually test necessarily, but he's built, you know, he's theorizing, uh, you know, hermetically sealed capsules to be able to, to go into space and stuff like that. And we didn't even know what space was, 
you know, in the early 20th century and late 1900s, like there was no, there was no sense of what it was even up there. And here he's theorizing things that, you know, whether or not the mechanics of what he did were accurate and some of it was, um, it theoretically was where we needed to go to get out into space, which is just really fast. And that's kind of the fascinating thing about the figures that get, that get put into the, the idea of cosmism is just how far intellectual inquiry when done with a serious intent can get you, um, you know, in both, you know, it's an interesting, again, he was, he was too early to actually see space travel, right? But his theories inspired the people who created the ability to have space travel, right? And, and also then, you know, again, just through intellect and through through mathematics and through science and through through working through the problem and and going down those you know again logic and and actual you know training your your mind to to get there he was able to to conceive and to actually sort of theorize and, and write you know scientific papers that he presented on these these ideas of astronautics and and space travel um which you know again the, the the rough outline would then come to be implemented, which is just, you know, it's fascinating. Um, and interestingly, yeah, he, you know, was kind of a, another guy. He was a, a sort of weird hermit guy, right? Like, if you see pictures of him, it's like big beard and, you know, not the kind of person that you would think of as the father of, or the, the grandfather, the, the progenitor of, of rock tree and that. Um, mm a hermit living in a rural area that just wrote these papers and sent them to scientific journals. <laughs> it's, inter it's interesting, isn't it? Because now there's statues of these people in Russia. Yeah. At least, yeah, yeah. And it's like, and these, they, they all died in poverty and yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's kind of fascinating that, yeah, but we'll, we'll explain why that happened. I think a bit, yeah. I think there's, we should probably end when we talk about cosmism talking about kind of, the name itself and yeah, what that means and because yeah. there's a there's a whole thing there <laughs> so, yeah but um oh so this one i'm I, i'm happy to do this next name it's <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot easier so the third kind of key figure is um vladimir verdansky actually i'm not as good yeah. uh, verdansky verdansky that's so verdansky okay <laughs> um but yeah so he um, came up with the idea of, he was more kind of consciousness based wasn't he and more well, and, no because there's no consciousness in, in oh yeah that's right yeah so it's the new sphere isn't it and the uh, yeah it's yeah. well it's, the, it's actually it was uh it was biocentric right so he right. was the, the biosphere mm. um and then it just you know if you're going to look at at the biosphere um our minds may be material but they're still a part of that material Right, and so his his theory of, of the biosphere included the mind, became kind of a, a panpsychic sort of sense, right? Like where we're, the material goes out into the organizing structure of the earth, our minds are connected to that structure. So again, sort of conceiving of a sort of cosmic humanity, right? Like that we're we're an element within a system, which is the earth system, which is part of the solar system, which is part of the, you know, local cosmos, the, gal the galactic system, right? And then moving up into these different orders <clears throat> and tracing that, you know, and so he becomes one of the, the early theorists of the biosphere. And again, late, late 1800s, right? Um, with these ideas 
And you know, one of the really interesting things, you get the, um, the NASA astronauts talking about the overview effect, right? So when they when they get up into space, you know, Edgar Mitchell was has a uh, maybe one of the more poetic people to write about it, and it, it changed his life and made him create the Institute of Noetic Science, right? So neosphere and that kind of thing. But um, this sense of humanity once you get off the Earth, and the sense of what it means yeah. to be a conscious or a, a mindful being in in that, and how different it is to be able to see the Earth as just a globe versus sitting in our, our own individual you know lives and and these ideas of states and nations and towns and cities and different people and everything to be above the earth and stare down and to see that it's all just one sphere you know all of the astronauts had a really profound kind of a sense of that william shatner when he recently went up had a sense of horror right like he went up and saw the vastness of, of space and the tininess of the earth and the, the sort of centrality of the earth and he was horrified by it mm. um it's like know, the lovecraft quote isn't it i've seen the face of god and it's terrible yeah kind yeah, of thing. yeah. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah you had that he had a lovecraftian experience in space. yeah <laughs> and so um the but what's interesting about these figures from the the late 1900s and early 20th century is they didn't get off the earth and they still had this right and they, mm. they built these these philosophical and scientific theories off of this overview effect sense, which they only had through intellectual means, mm. right? They, and, and what were their intellectual means at the time in the late 1900s and the early 20th century? That's the Bible, right? Like that's, that's uh, you know, for these people, it was Russian Orthodox in that, mm. um, and were Russian Orthodox writings on um, things. Uh, in the Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, the, the Orthodox branch of Christianity, has a thing called theosis, which is the uh, the negating of the self and the becoming a vessel for God, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Which is different than apotheosis, which is actually becoming God, right? Mm -hmm. um, theosis is what uh, the the height of contemplative practice. Um, in the West, they have apophatic theology, which is the negating of the self, to then be able to experience that that state of of divine grace, right? Mm. Of pure divine grace. But there's a sense that the human is always there. In in orthodoxy, there's a sense that you actually can negate the self and exist in this state of divine union, right? Where your individuality has been just completely let go. Um, and then, you know, you can get into the theology in those circles of, of how much humanity is left. Is there any humanity left? Is this even possible? Is this an aberration? Is this heretical? You know, but in orthodoxy, this idea exists. It's been discussed and everything. So you see that in these figures that are, are grouped into this idea of cosmism, where they're taking theosis and they're taking evolutionary science and they're combining the two into these utopian visions of um the future, future humanity as a, as a cosmic being. And then again, you go back to, um, I don't know the exact, I think it's in Corinthians, but Paul talks about Christ being above the angels. And essentially it's the sense of, of when, when you have Christ, which is God and man, and when they come together and you have this central point, it literally is the universe. And so it's the sense of sort of a cosmic Christ in not a new age sense, but an actual physical sense of 
you know, the anointed of God is literally the universe, right? Mm. It's literally the being that you're that you're in, and that the the person in taking communion or uh, you know participating in the Christian uh, faith is is taking part of that, right? Christ in me is, is repeated, right? And so you then become part of that. So theosis is the, the end point of that. So with these kind of things, this is where we're getting these theories from, right? And all that's been stripped off. Like we don't, you know, in the Western world, especially like, in, we don't talk about any of that stuff anymore, but these people are taking evolutionary science, uh, you know, apocalyptic Christian ideas and, and sort of the, the cosmic Christ idea and combining them, you know, um, drawing on things like uh you know rosicrucianism and and not not what we think of as rosicrucianism today the day yeah, not like amork <laughs> yeah that, well no, actually amork amork to some extent like does have yeah. a little bit of if you if you look at it right if you don't oh interesting if, but yeah i mean amor i i don't this amork is really interesting um again kind of a municipal magic sort of thing um if you read the neophyte very first lesson that you get in this mail order thing right and then read um, Zogjin preliminary practice cultivation techniques and dream yoga techniques. It's essentially the same practices. Mm-hmm. You're going to get to a different spot because you don't have the, the right view, which is in Zogjin and, and in, uh, you know, if you're in a traditional practice, you won't, you're not going to have the right view. So you're going to get to a different place. You mm-hmm. could get to the right view through, through Amark though. And you could, if you were diligent and you actually just did the practices and didn't, swallow the mythology and the legends and, mm-hmm. and all the rest of it the practices themselves though are you know they, they have that core there so i don't you know i don't discount things like amr but in this instance the rosicrucianism was was pietist so it was you know it was something more akin to, to what Jakob Boma and you know and that it was it was a different than what we think of now as rosicrucianism which was the amor thing or the contemporary idea of rosicrucianism as some sort of like amorphous you know Mm. organization that controls things or whatever like sort of like the illuminati but different right yeah so one thing that's interesting about cosmism is it kind of doesn't exist yeah that's that's <laughs> this is the other thing is that's the that's the reveal there's no cosmism yeah no. We don't, there's never there's not a historical movement of cosmism mm. you, have, you have isolated thinkers uh, especially the early the early people who get called the pioneers of cosmism mm-hmm. they're isolated thinkers that don't necessarily even reference each other's work um mm-hmm. we were talking about uh there was a a lecture given by um what's his name michael uh hagemeister uh hogmeister um it's german um, american we'll I'm link it in the show notes <laughs> yeah my apologies to mm-hmm. michael um 2017 he gave a talk Art without death, Russian cosmism, and uh, he mentions the fact that these people didn't even necessarily reference each other's work. Mm-hmm. These early folks, right? And so there's there's this there's this backward looking uh, narrative that's put on these people, where Fedorov influenced um, uh, Constantine's ideas of space travel and that, but they weren't in communication. They didn't. Yeah. It was it was literally just the, the sort of mindset of the time, the zeitgeist that these different people were picking up on in their own way and writing about them. Where now, with digital technology, flood of information and reassembling cultural parts and media has created this idea of cosmism. And again, I would, I would go back to the 70s, the period in the 70s when in, you know, probably the 60s too, but 
when the United States and the UK and the uh, you know the West. I'm uncomfortable using the term the West, but people know what I'm talking about. Um, we're looking at what was going on in Soviet Union and assembling these different things and trying to figure out like what exactly are they doing with their science? What are they, you know? Um, and that's where you start to get this idea of cosmism because again, you're getting these different reports from, from, you know, all over these little bits of information, creating kind of a bricolage pattern of, of what could be going on. And then that gets filtered through people in research proposals and, and searching it out. And then we now are looking at that time period, seeing them talk about cosmos going back and assembling it, you know, and so you have this sense of a unified movement, but there wasn't one. No. There was no, there was no unified movement of Russian cosmos. And what's interesting is it's, it's, what was its function? What was the function to um, create this kind of cosmism idea? Like it kind of bolsters a, a yeah. Soviet pride, doesn't it? Like a kind of yeah, well, a Russian, a Russian pride, because that's the interesting. Mm -hmm. So with the, with the, the, and that's the interesting thing is, like the Soviet Union was a mess, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are people that look back on the Soviet Union and say it was better when we didn't, you know, we just could just have a. a the council flat kind of thing and it was paid for and we could you know go to our job and we didn't need to think about it but the, the soviet union was miserable <laughs> it wasn't it was not a good a good implementation of humanity and so what do you have to do now as ex kgb people right like putin and that like how do you capture the russian mind well, you still need the Soviet Union. You're going to have some pride in it, right? Like, you still kind of need that because that's where you got your credentials and that's where whatever. But you got to go back, right? Like, you got to go back to right before. Like, well, what did, where was our misstep? And so you can go back, you know, and, I'm, you know, I don't think Putin necessarily would do this. He's too, he's a, he's a politician and he's too practical. But the ideologues around that, right, need to find a way to create sort of a sense of Russian identity. And cosmism is a, is a way to do that. The interesting thing about cosmism, though, and it's the same thing that we see, you know, in the UK or the United States or, or wherever, um, it's kind of embarrassing to some extent. You know, some of these ideas are kind of wacky. They, they go a little far. And so it gets picked up by, you know, more countercultural elements. And, and then for which, which are still useful to a, to a state identity, right? Um, but can be denied and can be pushed off, you know? So it provides this really convenient, bold, um, what uh, I think Zizek had called a totalitarian vision of a, of a universal humanity and, and puts a, a Russian, you know, gloss on it. And then it, it, can, it can work with that. And you have all these different really curious figures in the past that you can, you know, bring into this idea of, of cosmism. And I think uh, in that lecture, uh, the mentioned earlier the uh one of the things again the problem of translation comes into play where the russian writers you know like dugan and that start writing about this stuff and start start creating this sense of a unity to it right and then when that goes to the united states or wherever it goes to another language and gets translated it starts to be written as a unified movement yeah right? yeah isn't and there's nobody nobody's going back and you know they'll read a secondary source they'll read a book on cosmism mm -hmm. but very rare one to find translations of all the works but two um that anybody would even bother to go back and actually read the material itself mm -hmm. which i think is so important with this stuff you always got you have to go back and you got to read the journals 
Well, it's yeah. like traditionalism, isn't it? It's the same yeah. thing. It's like where yeah. people have yeah. picked up this kind of idea and then warped the idea um, yeah. to, to fit it around their own thing. So I, you could say like Bannon and people like that have taken tradition, they, well, a, yeah. a version of traditional, a warped version of traditionalism and sort of used it to kind of make it a, yeah. I guess, a more, it's, it almost like tries tries to justify some extreme conservatism is what it feels like to me a lot of the time with, with people like yeah. Bannon and Dugan and people like that. It's kind of, but yeah, and it's the same thing with cosmism, isn't it? Where they're using it as a way of wrapping an identity around something that <laughs> didn't really exist. And it's, yeah. like, and it, it's, it's fascinating. But, um, and the amount yeah. of change that technology is causing, right. And this, you know, like we'd mentioned transhumanism earlier and how some of the ideas get, get, there's similar ideas in transhumanism, whether they were derived at points from the cosmos, people or the people that are, are labeled cosmist. Um, and then also just it's the logical progression of technology if you're going to push it to a utopian, like post-human thing. Um, but, you know, it uh, it provides, they provide an answer. I mean, that's the thing. Technology is so intrusive into our lives, um, whether it's technology on a personal level of like behavioral modification and you know, just mind training and, and that kind of thing, uh, you know, the therapeutic level, right? Technology applied like that or organizational efficiency. It's so intrusive. It's so absolutely intrusive. And then the, you know, digital technology and all of this stuff, it's all intrusive. And so the human organism itself is kind of like, you know, I don't know about this. So something like cosmism, we're all going to be, you know, angel people in the future of flying through space and collecting our ancestor dust you know and you can get sort of float through that idea well you know industrialization happens technology happens um you know smartphones and everything when in reality we're just sort of becoming drooling zombies staring at screens you know um but it's nice to dream that will be space angels yeah so one person that gets kind of lumped in with cosmos sometimes is uh Kozarev. Nikolai, mm -hmm. I can't remember his middle name. It's Nikolai something Kozarev. Uh, <laughs> but Kozarev's an interesting character as well because he's not like the other cosmists in the in the sense that he's an actual scientist working yeah. in science, you know, in sort of state-sponsored science. And uh, he, yeah, he's... I think state-sponsored science because they did, you know, like uh, Konstantin Silakovsky did publish in peer-reviewed journals and that. So these were, you know, they were they were fringe-ish but they were still they were in the stream or whatever but Co yeah by the time Kozarev comes around he actually is like a state-sponsored scientist working yeah. on theories and that and he's kind of interesting because there's kind of two phases to Kozarev aren't there there's the kind of pre-prison and post-prison Kozarev and it's like yeah. um and he's kind of an interesting character so he He's, his stuff on time i can't remember was the time stuff before he went to prison or after prison i can't remember now mm, um, i'm not sure but his, yeah. his, I'm, he saw he saw time as a almost like the ether didn't he so it's kind of like yeah. a etherical thing that can be well well so like you gotta you gotta kind of drill into that though because we use ether to mean kind of you know flighty specious sort of non non-tangible but well, that's at the time that there were actual tests, weren't there? So, I mean, prior yeah. to Kozarev, well, the, the ether would be ether would be a physical property, right? Like that's the thing about ether is it's actually a physical property of, of reality. Um, and so, Kozarev treats time as a physical, like like force, right? Like it's it's just there's an energy to time, 
there's a mass to a certain extent to time is what he's what he's looking at is his is his theory as simplified as it, i mean he's actually doing he's actually doing physics of that so you've got to you have to to be more knowledgeable about that kind of stuff yeah and outside, of, outside yeah, of my wheelhouse uh, lots, of, <laughs> lots of maths, lots of maths yeah, yeah. The, the basic idea is that the time has has an actual sort of materiality to it and a, and a material component to it and also that time travels faster than light right so its mm. speed is faster than light um that time makes up for some of what it gets called dark matter that that's actually like the weight of time time represents a sort of potential so in the development of things the the energy and the, the mass of time is actually the the energy and mass of potentials right and, and he, he 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 spoke about something called the arrow of time i think it is mm -hmm. isn't it so the um it's like this uh it could be reversible so he, mm -hmm. there's this idea of like time it's time travel well sort of isn't yeah. it yeah it's, it's kind of reflecting time almost isn't it Rather yeah than, yeah. Then, uh, yeah. So it's kind of that's, real interesting stuff. Well, and that's yeah, the Kozarev mirrors, right? Since time is a physical property, if you create the proper lens, mm. you can then focus time, switch the direction of time in that. Um, and the Kozarev mirrors, it's, it's just like sort of a loose spiral of aluminum, like shiny aluminum. If you sit in the center of it, you know, the idea is that you can then start to have these visionary experiences of, of time travel on that. There's another version of it, um, which uh, I, about a decade ago, I think I was at a parapsychological association conference and I had dinner with uh, Carol De La Heron, who was at the time the executive director of the Monroe Institute. She was talking about a Kozarev mirror that was actually just a, a sphere that the entire inside was reflective. Mm -hmm. And you would sit in the center of it, you know, and I think it also had like the uh, sound canceling qualities too. So it's like absolutely silent and you're in this just like mirrored, you know, thing and that that would induce altered states of consciousness and that, but that, that one, um, was a bit too intense. Like that, that <laughs> her descriptions of it were that it, it wasn't a pleasant thing and it wasn't something that like you would just jump into. It's not like going to be like a ketamine clinic where you go to your like sphere ball, like your sphere mirror and like sit <laughs> in it, that it was like, you know, trauma inducing if you were. Yeah. Well, you hear that about there's if you have a room that's completely um has no sound whatsoever yeah. it can drive yeah. people like yeah, stuff, yeah i had a little bit you know living in like a, a rural area um the silence and the noise is amazing mm. and you know i'm originally from chicago and i had friends come down and um none of my friends who visited from chicago could really handle nights uh in the woods um I was living for a while on about 114 acres of woods um, and the drone of the insects at night, you know, and then alternating with just like silence mm -hmm. uh, was, just drove them crazy because yeah. there was not the stimulation and I don't have a TV or anything like that. So it was, they had nothing, they had, nothing. <laughs> they had none of the, the convenient, the convenient distractions of uh, contemporary society and it really drove them nuts. is it sensory deprivation i think that's the yeah yeah so the, one of the interesting things with kozarev <clears throat> um was he had this idea of something called a torsion field didn't he mm -hmm. as well 
What was the torsion field? So the torsion field is the it's the same kind of thing. Where is this? Uh, it, it's the, the torsion uh, it's it's mass it's bats, but like basically, like a, a toroidal a toroidal shape is a donut, right? And so uh, the torsion field is being able to take these these uh, quantum spin and create this sort of like quantum spin that creates uh, torque, right? And then it creates energy. And so from, you know, it's, there, there's a whole bunch of different theories how to, you know, zero point energy and that kind of thing. And the torsion field is, is an example of that, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, and then again, then that tying in with his ideas of, of time as an actual sort of, you know, physical component to, mm -hmm. to reality, um, being able to create torsion fields of time and being able to create these, you know, it, it's kind of a search for a perpetual motion machine, or a perpetual energy machine. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. And, I it, it, well, and it also ties into, I think, like one of the things that um, psychic machines or machine, like mind matter machines were really big in the Soviet Union and they got brought over here as well. There were, you know, psychotronic devices um, from Georgia, actually, uh, Dr. Hieronymus had, uh, you know, his, his wishing machine and the there's there's still uh, Kelly Instruments is is up in North Georgia and they produce psychotronic devices, um, but basically for enhancing mind matter interactions and that. And so there you know there's a whole bunch of work in that. In 1975, I think it was the UN actually UNESCO put out a, a journal which was celebrating the the birth of, of psychotronic science um, and the the combination of, of psychic studies and technology, you know, and so Kozarev working with these mirrors and, and the torsion fields and that is, is kind of fitting into that, that model. He, one of the other things he was kind of known for, and this is where he kind of does cross over a little bit with the cosmic stuff is the, he also believed in like cosmic consciousness and um, the, the kind of interconnectedness of all things kind of thing, yeah. didn't he? Which is kind of, uh, some we've sort of discussed that a bit with the um i can't remember which one it was now was it uh which which cosmist was it <laughs> um, uh, i forgot these names it was, i think it was constantine wasn't it um no 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 it wasn't it was no, um Vernansky. yeah Vernansky, yeah so there's so there is a crossover there so you do wonder if he maybe did read him or was influenced yeah well in this is you know coming later too there's more likelihood that you actually had read read these things mm -hmm. uh, you know when you have people within the same sort of contemporary time period uh in this area like it may or may not have read it but you know uh him coming later more likely that we had looked at it you know? and what's interesting with kozirev obviously he was just before he died he was building a machine wasn't he some kind mm -hmm. of um like a time travel machine or yeah yeah some sort of thing which never he died mysteriously as as these scientists tend to <laughs> um, well, you know and that's the thing too is like you never know what else like folks are working on right so if there was like some sort of nefariousness to his death like he may have screwed up something else or, or hmm. you know, gotten on some other list or just you know generally just died right yeah like, that's, that's, that's a or just we like to romanticize these things sometimes yeah. but, um, but what's interesting with him as well is that after he died, his work, his state-sponsored work continued. So mm -hmm. he had a, and this is where I kind of first learned about Kozirev was the yeah. 
post-death stuff the the mirror experiments yeah well and it's it's interesting too because like in in the soviet when the with the collapse of the soviet union um it was very strange because over here in the united states nobody who was working on the psychic warfare program that, that wasn't a that wasn't like a good thing for your career like you weren't going to end up you know there are some some bureaucrats and some administrators who weathered the storm and then were able to go on to other things, you know, but like the scientists themselves, like they did, they were not given credence for, for that research. Mm -hmm. um, but in the Soviet Union, some of these folks actually got put into higher levels of positions within cabinet positions and that. So you have this really weird thing in the Soviet Union where the stuff that over here gets declassified and considered crap and like tossed out and then you know conversation of was it real was it not real what really happened continues um in the the soviet union some of these scientists actually got pulled into to cabinet level positions and and then the the research you know continues on that um mm. they did it was a paper that came out i don't know what journal i forget what journal it was but it was on uh pyramid energies you know i mean like which and it came out maybe five years ago six years ago or something um maybe less than that but just surprising to see and it was you know it was a peer-reviewed paper in in russia um never would have gotten anywhere in, in europe or the united states uh but uh you know considered legitimate science there yeah so what actually so when uh it's kind of interesting what actually um, sort of happened when they did these experiments with the mirrors. I, I, from memory, they were in two separate areas, weren't they? The idea was, I, I can't remember if the original idea was to sort of somehow link the two over yeah. space time. Um, yeah, that's the, I mean, that, the, so in a lot of the Soviet research, like you had, um, there, there's a pre-existing concept of, because they were working a lot on, uh, mind matter influence, right? Which is where the psychotronics come in and, and that kind of thing. And some of their experiments in weaponizing psychic functioning, um, stopping someone's heart and that. But the, the idea being that you needed some kind of rapport with the person, right? So it's easier to affect somebody that you know. Um, and uh, that coming out of, of sort of behaviorist research in in what now are known as mirror neurons and that but the the mirroring potential of people who are who know each other right and there's a lot of anecdotal stuff and studies done on uh how far that goes and then into the parapsychological literature and that so um yeah you would have two people in these mirror devices right like but you know drawing on that drawing on that history the the best the sort of very sort of a very Russian experiment would be to have two people in these things and then seeing you know having that like transference and that that cross influence you know I think they did the kind of almost classic they had like a series of symbols didn't they that would mm -hmm. um, and they were looking for kind of commonalities with the the you know one person receiving a uh, symbol at right. the end which is kind right. of like that's a weird, that's almost like the um, the sort of psychic tests, isn't it? Yeah, the yeah. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. And there was the astro body or that, yeah, the astro travel. 
So why do you think Kozirev suddenly became interesting to people again all of a sudden? Because I first heard of Kozirev a long, long time ago, but I didn't really, it, I didn't pay a great deal of attention. But all of a sudden, recently, he seems to have become a bit of a well, he, countercultural kind of guy. Yeah, there's been an uptick in Russia of, mm. of sort of revisiting this stuff. There's an uptick here as well, mm. as, as we know. Um, the... Uh, which I guess is a big here because you're in you're in Britain, so we've got like a, a large here. But yeah, there's there's been an uptick in this kind of stuff. It's, um, it also comes in with the declassification of the the U.S. psychic warfare program stuff. So every time that got declassified, a lot of it was looking at research that was going on in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And so folks who were interested in that would then read that stuff, and then it becomes a news item when it comes back. The the Monroe Institute stuff came up recently because there was a page that was missing from one of the, the FOIA requests mm. um, on the, uh, the remote viewing program, uh, Project Stargate stuff, and they finally released the page. Somebody found the page, and people got very excited. It became a Vice news article, and uh, TikTok went nuts for it. So, you know, it's that kind of sort of trending thing of going back and finding these people mm. and bringing forward you know um i so kozarev was big i mean when like do you remember the, the website rex research do you remember that it was like a 2000s sort of thing that had a lot of like uh psychic warfare stuff and uh saber geometry and alchemy and just one of those like wonderful like early internet kind of like mix of like maker culture and like high weirdness kind of stuff um mm. so he you know that the Kozarev mirror stuff was on there you know like you had diagrams for how to make it and stuff like that and then you know i mean one of the i mean with any of these figures coming out now like in our current like time period like the content the need for content mm. yeah is, true that's really what I would say is just just the need for content. Like people mm. go searching for what's new, interesting, whatever, and yeah. then it becomes a, it becomes a thing for a little bit, and then some people may take it up and bring it. I mean, that may be a cynical take, but um, that's really a lot. Of, most of the stuff seems to me just like content mining. <laughs> like, yeah, like yeah. This, is, this is good content to, to go. Well, you brought it up earlier, and we we should, and we've I think we've mentioned it a couple of times in the Move Zone as well, and I've mentioned it on other episodes of sitting now. But we should talk a little bit about the Gateway Experience, and the, yeah, because uh, yeah. that's that's another um, you know it's another magic. I mean, that's, in, intersection of state and yeah. uh, strangeness, isn't it? So let's yeah. talk about Robert Monroe, who was uh, prior to um, you know becoming the Robert Monroe we know now. He was a uh, kind of radio mm-hmm. guy wasn't he i think he was selling commercial radio station equipment was it as equipment or was he actually selling um no he was something to do with radio don't 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 diminish his, his <laughs> he uh he was a he was a pre-med student in college mm-hmm. dropped out for a year became a hobo which is which is awesome like uh became so he just traveled around <laughs> like hop trains went back to college got an engineering degree um, worked at his local college radio station, um, and uh, he got interested in in radio. He became a programmer for stuff. He became a, a journalist for a while. A writer wrote wrote programs in that, 
Um, but then because of his engineering background, uh, he actually started to produce and uh, work on um, like actual, you know, development of radiophonic technology. Right, so different different uses for that stuff. Yeah, that's kind of what I meant. I didn't mean he was like yeah. a traveling salesman. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's just fucking, yeah. fucking like well, you know, yeah, it's like selling uh, radios or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so he he became like a producer. He actually produced some of the some fairly big shows at the time, which I don't remember. I think the, uh, I want to say the price is right, but I don't, that's not right. Um, but he also. He was the first person to bring cable television, I believe, to uh, to Virginia or the Central Virginia area where he was at. So he was basically just a you know he was a an industry guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he had his he had his own corporation doing this building radio stuff. But what he became interested in was, um, and again, this is going back to the executive culture thing, um, and de- developing the executive and developing the the, the you know the corporate human, right, um, was in advanced learning through audio. So it was advanced it, learning, but also sleep, wasn't it? He was obsessed with trying to come up with, because uh, I was watching an interview. Yeah, sleep learning. Yeah, sleep yeah, learning. Yeah, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he, he was coming up with a way of, it was two different things. If I remember rightly from the interview, it was sleep learning, so like learning by osmosis almost. And mm-hmm. then um, the other thing was also, creating tones that would put you into a relaxed state so that you could a sleep but also you'd be in a state to learn as well so i think that was the that, that was kind of the catalyst for what kind of came next wasn't it he was kind right. of he was creating a um a sort of tone a tonal way of a binaural... came, actually came later yeah yeah so, uh, yeah so this this early stuff was just subliminals he was just working with like subliminals and like um you know, rapid learning stuff. So like the idea that you could, yeah, you could, while you were sleeping, just put on a, a tape and it'll play whatever you need to learn. And then you can, you can learn it. Um, and he would, yeah, he was experimenting with those and um, experienced, uh, you know, what now is known as sort of like the, the pre-entry to an out-of-body experience or sleep paralysis or, you know, um, which is sort of a buzzing humming in the body that you that you experience um and he experienced this a couple times as weird he woke himself up like whatever and then eventually decided that he was going to go with it. i think he had a he had an experience with a, a light like this kind of like uh, i read it in uh valet's dimensions as a pink light or something like that but then i read it otherwhere as it was a, a sort of luminosity that wasn't quite uh, visible, but this this sense of light and this, this buzzing, and so he decided to go with it and ended up having his first out of body experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, he told Andrzej Puherik about it, um, who you know people know Puherik if they know him uh, as somebody who experimented with uh, EMF mm-hmm. effects on the body and effects of low frequency on the body. Yeah. Um, and did extensive studies of mediumship and channeling and, and that kind of stuff and um, has some really interesting uh, work on, on parapsychology, which has been sort of ignored. In, in Was this the guy that said to get that experience again, you'll need to become like a yogi or something and go to India for someone told him he needed to go to I don't India think for 10 years or yeah. something. 
who Herrick had like a, a baby. He had a he had a lab in his house. So he uh-huh. didn't seem like the kind of good, you know, <laughs> yeah. sort of guy. I think he would have brought India to him and like and made it happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe but, it was his doctor or something. I can't remember. I, I have read his book. Yeah, that might be. Yeah, that might be a, a kind of doctor thing. Um, yeah. But, so this is where the binaural comes in, though. Is that yeah. They were so he started to, to think of ways like, well, okay, so how do we introduce this? And one of his engineers, one of the scientists working at his, and this is a corporate, like, you got to understand, like, Robert Monroe at this time period is a corporate executive, you know, in the media, right? And so uh, he's he's a corporate executive, and he's got a, a corporation that has a research and development division that's working on these uh, these sort of, you know, developing this advanced learning stuff. So he gets one of his guys, comes up with uh, binaural beats, which are, uh, or binaural beats, which are a way of of synchronizing the brain using alternating uh, patterns of sound. And, you know, so you, you have, this is 50s, 60s, they're doing stuff on, on, we talked, you know, about the, the, they were doing studies on meditation they had people in doing Zen meditation. They were studying that. Um, they were studying snake handling, transinduction, you know, and using EEGs and, and actually, st- you know, studying brain patterns and that. And you have uh, the binaural beats, so you know that there's there is a, there's a brain state that is associated with this. Mm-hmm. How do you induce that brain state, right? And so synchronizing the brain through these binaural beats seems to be a way to do it. And then what they did was they Monroe as a test subject, right? They would, would basically listen to these sounds until it worked, right? And then finding, you know, and finding other people that, that could be taught to do this. Because when Monroe writes about out-of-body experience, the difference with his out-of-body experience, the way he's treating it, is a corporate executive working in technology, working in media. He's coming at it, de-occulting it, take all the occult out. Like, we just want the science. We want to see how it's done, figure out, like, what to do. And so, um, but there's there's a ton of material on out-of-body experiences and, and trance induction, right? Mm-hmm. Again, going back to that popular occultism stuff that went into the idea that you could do advanced learning and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. There's there's a bunch of, I mean, uh, uh, Hereward Carrington, uh had a book on out-of-body experiences. They, they've been studying it. It was called astral travel at the time. Monroe didn't want astral travel, but he, he had experienced the physical state that was called astral travel. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted to, you know, figure out how to do that. So well, astral had, travel goes back to, I mean, Crowley wrote about astral travel. Didn't oh, yeah, yeah, it goes back. Yeah. I mean, you got astral travel with Swedenberg. Like, you go back, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I mean, it's, you, the Greeks had, had descriptions of astral travel. So, yeah, so yeah. It's, it's, it's a well, well, established kind of thing so um greeks didn't call it astral travel obviously but like i mean you have any of it in that you mean there's yogic there's uh i forget what the book is called something like advanced travel to other planets or something like that but it was it was yeah. done by a yogi a yogi yeah. in the 60s or something who was probably more like the 70s because he was critiquing the space program and he was saying you know well if you're an advanced practitioner of meditation you can do this without a rocket ship yeah uh, yeah you know, and that's what, i mean robert anton wilson as well he was yeah about that kind of stuff Burrows, you know he said that you know when humanity goes out in space it's going to be as a 
Mm. I think you jokingly said something like a like a space squid, like a like an amorphous like mind octopus in space or something like that. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, um, and that was a lot. There's actually there's a, um, in a sense, the the psychic studies in the United States paralleled the the space program and also in the in the Soviet Union. And so you have, uh, you know, sort of a psychic space program in a sense mm -hmm. of you got Ingo Swan working with SRI to try to um, remote view Jupiter and that before the satellite gets there so that when the satellite gets there, they can get the feedback that he did through his remote viewing session. And in that, he was working with, um, I don't know if it was Mercury or Jupiter, but he was working with uh, uh, a guy whose name is escaping me, but he was a popular author on developing ESP in the 50s. And he had done some long-distance ESPs tests in the 30s with somebody who was on an Antarctic voyage. Um, you know, so again, there's there's this established sort of history to all this stuff. Uh, Monroe's not just like jumping out from nowhere like as an executive to do this, but he had the experience. He uses his his corporation to try to develop the the technology, and then obviously, you know, Kuharik is was working with the army and was working with uh, different, you know, government and military groups to try to sort of develop these programs and sort of figure out, like, what is this? What does this mean? Um, and so Monroe's connection to Kuharik gets him also involved once he develops these technologies. When SRI starts to develop their stuff with the remote viewing, the next kind of stage is the two coming together. We have the remote viewing paradigm. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have people who are trained in remote viewing working with the binaurals to get to that mind state where they can then enhance their, their abilities. And then in the 80s, you get Joe McMonagle has special programs designed for him by the Monroe Institute. Joe McMonagle being uh, one of the leading remote viewers in the SRI program. And uh, well, actually, in the, in, the, um, in the remote viewing program as a whole, he's one of the, the best examples of in the public of remote viewers that have come out of that. And he, uh, I was gonna say, I think I, I remember, um, I, in, in that, I, I'll, I'll link it in the description again as well. The, uh, and the show notes, the, there's an interview with Bob Monroe on, um, on YouTube. It's a long, it's like an uncut interview. So it's just a raw interview. Um, and he's at the very beginning, he says, so it's, what he says at the beginning and what he says at the end are really, really interesting. So he says, he starts off saying what you were saying about he's coming at it from like a corporate angle. He's looking for a product, essentially, that he can make and sell. Um, and he said, and he, he he says something like, oh, I'm not interested in any of that occult crap. You know, he yeah. literally yeah. dismisses it. Yeah. He dismisses it. Mm -hmm. but at the end of the interview, it's an hour long, I think, the interview. And at the end, he's talking in a, in a cult language. He's talking about right. like, um, you know, like, how there's different zones that you can mm -hmm. go to. He's talking yeah, like Kenneth apples. Grant almost. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, like, yeah. And it's really fascinating that he doesn't see that as, as a cult language no, or it's kind of esoteric language. Um, yeah. That's yeah. the amusing thing though, is that, and that was the, that was the wild, when I had dinner with Carol De La Heron, executive director for the Monroe Institute, like the, there was nothing occult, weird, counterculture about this woman at all. She's a very sophisticated, like worldly executive, and uh, would 
just like someone would talk about getting a cup of coffee, talk about going into an out-of-body experience, out-of-body state. In terms of functionality, right? Like, oh, I want to know what that room is. I'll just OB it. And it was no, this wasn't like, this wasn't amping it up. Like, I'm a wizard and I can OB. You know, it wasn't anything you would get in any popular occultism at all. This was an executive that was talking, I'm going to turn the key on my car, right? And I'm going to go. Like, oh, you need me to get on that plane? I'll get on the plane. It was it was business. This was not a totally different feeling. And it's because they actually had the experiences. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people who are used to hearing about, like, you know, occultism or whatever, like, the number of people who can actually do what they talk about is minimal. Yeah. And it's wrapped uh, in the kind of mythology. And, yeah. And, and it's, yeah, and it's, it's wrapped stuff. in the ego. And it's wrapped in I want to be a wizard. And I want to look like I'm a wizard. And I want to dress like a wizard. And I want to mm. you know, be recognized as a wizard. And I got all these different initiations and all the rest of it, these people actually did this stuff, right? Mm. Like they actually had the experience and that's where they started. They didn't start from, I want, you know, I want to be the cool wizard person. And so I'm going to go get these initiations and go into these, these groups or whatever. They started off as, you know, just everyday people. Mm. And then they had these experiences or they were in the corporation and Bob Monroe introduced them to the experiences or whatever. There's a, um, one of the articles that was written in the 90s, I think, about the uh, the Monroe Institute, the journalist said that the most normal people, when they went on the gateway experience at, at the Institute itself, you can get the, the tapes in that. They, went, they actually went through the training. The most normal people that they experienced were the people who worked at the Institute. Mm. The people who came for the program were all new age and, and flaky, mm. right? the people who did the thing at the Institute or the people who worked there were normal because mm-hmm. they, they didn't come at it from, you know, they weren't coming in as seekers or, or whatever, yeah. you know, and that's not to, I'm not trying to slight, you know, like, um, you know, whatever. I'm not trying to slight anybody, but it's a, <laughs> it's a totally different mindset. Right. Like, yeah, and, and, and then, and the other thing too, is his, his switch between I wanted a product. Mm-hmm. Once you have the experience, you can't just want the product. No, yeah. and that was the thing. That was the thing that Monroe struggled with his whole life after having these experiences and developing this stuff. Was what the hell does this mean now? Mm. Right? Like I, I went into it with one mindset that I was going to develop, you know, products for mind training and the rest. This is the same thing that happened in the psychic warfare program. Mm. How do you continue in this very you know, limited scope of what you intend with this stuff, when you realize you have the experience that it means so much more, mm. you know, how and do you... the difference with Monroe as well is that he's, he's got the budget to continue doing it, hasn't he? Right. And that, yeah, that's, yeah. that's yeah. the, uh, that's the thing that often stops, yeah. you know, we're, we're talking about these kind of municipal things go drifting away and so yeah, he had a corporation that he could actually draw from, which is yeah, ironically, exactly. if you go back to, if you go back to the alchemical tradition, Right, like there's all those great like, well, probably after late medieval, right? Like so during the Rosicrucian Fuhrer, when you really get like alchemy written as alchemy kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And the advice is basically like, if you if you're not rich and you don't have the money, don't do it. Go go contemplate God. Go pray. I think even Crowley said that to a degree. I I never. I mean, if you don't have the money to do this stuff, like you're, you're really risking your, your happiness and your health and your future to go pursuing these things, which may not turn into anything. Because the other, you know, Monroe happened to have the, the, the ability to, to have these experiences. Not everybody can. 
No, it's the same with um, if you look at Cro like with uh, the Abramelum working, for example. The you have to right. like have a yeah. particular property in a particular area, and you have to to be able well, to do you this. You need it. yeah, you, you need, need a lot of money, basically. <laughs> yeah, you need um, to be able to take months off and like or like a yeah. year off and be able to not. It's like filmmaking. You need a budget. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the same thing. It's like yeah, it's um, it's it's yeah, it's mad though, and but. What's interesting as well with the Monroe Institute is that they sort of commercialized it, didn't they? And then became, and then what the Monroe Institute now that you see the one you can get the app for on the on your iPhone that has all the courses, it feels very Gaia TV compared to yeah. Well, the there's Mon and so this is an interesting thing. Like, uh, so with this with the sound with the sound stuff, right? And experimenting with sound and that another figure that came up, I think Monroe's book. This first book came out in what, like seventy two or something like that, seventy one. Yeah, somewhere around there. I think yeah, seventy somewhere seventy two to seventy five. It's somewhere around there, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's seventy one or seventy two. Yeah. Um, okay. So in the the late sixties, there was a guy in uh, a New York musician who went to California, Stephen Halpern, who became sort of the godfather of New Age music when he was in the somewhere in the redwood forests and had what he thought was a download essentially of the future of music right and so he coincidences and whatnot he ended up meeting stanley krippner stanley krippner who had done the memonides dream lab esp studies and that um had was working with charles tart who was the guy who coined the term altered states of consciousness charles tart was working with bob monroe bob monroe's working on sound stephen halpern has this download in the redwoods of this idea of the future of sound it's what he calls um well he, he talks about this thing called scalus interruptus which is if you're listening to a piece of music right um you know where it's going to go it's going on logical patterns right so like if you're you know if you're doing a a, a scale up the octave your brain is putting those notes in ahead and no matter what the musician does to alter that you're going to hear the alteration as something strange and go, ooh, that was, that was strange, that's interesting. Or you're going to already have predicted where that's going to go, right? And so that's how jazz musicians can improvise because you know you get to set thing, right? So his concept was if we're looking at binaural beats, if we're looking at how sound affects the brainwaves and how it affects the physiology, there's got to be a physiological effect to predicting where that is going, where that scale is going, right? And so that's what he calls the scalus interruptus, where your brain is already anticipating this and it's either going to be rewarded with it didn't go there or it's going to be punished with it didn't go there. But either way, your brain is in a state of anticipation. Mm -hmm. How do you get rid of that? Right. And so his vision of this new music was directly tied to synthesizers. It's pure tones, right? pure tones that a, a master musician may be able to approximate on an instrument and an acoustic instrument, but cannot actually, you can never hit that, right? But with a synthesizer, you can get much closer to a pure actual tone and actual sound, um, even more so now than, than back then. But so, so pure tones and no rhythm, because the rhythm of the scale is part of what makes you anticipate it. Mm. So you get rid of the rhythm, you get rid of the, or if you do have rhythm, it's a trance rhythm, right? Like it's more in what you would have in a serpent handling thing, right? Or these trance traditions, the the African uh, 
trans-based uh, truisms like uh, now. It's a bit like the, um, I go and watch, we watch a lot of Indian, what they call Indian raggas. They're kind of yeah, like, um, like raga, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So you have that tone that plays yeah, underneath and it's, it's, the whole it's time. It's much yeah. more circular. And it's yeah, just, yeah. Even if you go back to um, troubadour music, they have the hurdy-gurdy and it just, it just grinds through like kind of a, a drone tone, right? Yeah, yeah. So like, um, but if you, so you start taking that and you take out these ideas of classical music composition and it's just tones and if you do have rhythms they're very circular and they're very like fluid right and that's new age music right yeah. but it didn't exist yet so here's halpern bringing that into this milieu with these same people in conversation with these same people right and this goes back to the whole funding thing so you've got if you look at the media and the news in the 70s you have psychic conferences and you have the leading scientists are presenting like Leary's hosting an event in LA and everybody's coming and you've got, you know, Bob Monroe's going to be there and whatever. And there's all this stuff. Everything, we've got bands coming, they're playing, it's these big things and there's media for it because the tabloids have picked it up. There's a guy, Myron Foss, um, who ran some amazing exploitation magazines in the sixties and seventies and into the eighties. And um, you know he was he was publishing ESP magazine, which was covering this stuff. Omni um, wasn't out yet, but it would be out in the eighties, right? So you had this this kind of sense where this was going somewhere. We're going. This is all revolutionary. You got space. You got psychics. We're all going there. The astrology is right. Aquarius. You know the music. Everything's saying go. And then the eighties hit, and there was no go, right? Like <laughs> none of this stuff happened, right? Like the aliens didn't land. Like you know. Uh, uh, Yuri Geller was not the space messiah, right? Like, <laughs> there was no psychic. Super he still thinks he is, though, doesn't he, on Twitter? But uh... yeah, he's, he's <laughs> yeah. with it. I mean, that's the thing. Like, people need to understand that Yuri's got like a sense of humor, and a lot of times he trolls, knowing what people are going to react to. Like, what? Oh yeah, yeah. You know? But like, yeah, I mean, because he's a magi- he's a performance magician. So, yeah, yeah. With with possibility of having uh, you know some extra tossed in there, but so there was this whole sense it was going somewhere, but then it didn't go anywhere. So what do you do? Right. So stuff like the Monroe Institute, you actually have an experience that you can have. I mean, if you if people go out there and they do the gateway experience, if you go through with it and you go with an open mind and you, you know, just, just drop the skeptic, let the binaural beat take you, listen to the, the hypnotic inductions or don't. Right. Like you don't feel comfortable doing that. But if you do go through it, um, you're going to have an experience. You're going to experience the different states of consciousness, because at the very least, the isochronic tones and binaural beats are going to be altering your brain waves. You're going to feel it if you, if you do it properly, if you do it over the right period of time, you may even feel it right away. Right. Um, but the, um, some of this other stuff, it's not quite as saleable. Right. And so it's interesting because you see, you know, Halpern still produces, you know, music and, and that kind of thing. But the idea that he had for healing music and for these these healing modalities with sound and the ability to take these binaural beats and the changing the brain waves and the not having the scalus interruptus and the rest of it and healing people with it, you do have sound therapy does get does start to develop out of that. But his more the bigger sense of this is this has some like global historical import, it just isn't there. So Halpern in the 80s starts producing, you know, drive time relaxation tapes mm-hmm. or, you know, get get over your stress tapes. And it's all yeah. focused on kind of a holistic health kind of thing. Right. But it's because it, you have to make money. You've yeah. got to make money on it. Right. I and found so, it. 
this they've got an app on i don't know if our listeners can see this but there's a app called expand and this is basically the uh oh, the, yeah yeah the monroe experiments yeah, um, yeah. monroe institute rather that it's there you can basically download your gateway experience through this if you want yeah you it's, can, uh, yeah, the, yeah the, it's on uh, apple music <laughs> it's crazy yeah, it's, yeah. yeah and the um and the monroe institute does stuff now too where they they partner with musicians oh, to put in yeah, yeah. Uh, to put in the underlying sort of programming tones and whatnot under the the music and you can still go you can actually visit the institute can't you you pay a load of money and you can have the kind of uh, uh yeah it's a guided the guided the, experience I mean, it's a resort it, no, i mean a resort but it's a uh i want to say spa but I, I feel like <laughs> a derogatory but like um yeah it's a it's sort of like that it's like a an event spa yeah it's interesting though but it's um yeah it's kind of fascinating that, so it seems like consumerism really took over then doesn't it really well it has yeah, to. yeah. We, we live in a consumer we live in a, a consumer society like yeah just, I mean, where are you getting the money like unless you're gonna are you gonna go eat herbs and be the hermit you know i mean are you gonna go live like because that, and that's one of the interesting things about those early cosmists is they kind of did they mm -hmm. had wacky ideas and they sort of were like well i'm just gonna take this job as a librarian and, and i'm gonna write crazy stuff you know or not crazy in a bad way but you know i'm gonna i'm gonna stretch the boundaries of of, of what can be written about right mm -hmm. but they took the hit they went and you know i mean uh i mentioned peter kingsley earlier with, uh, with sufism um and Peter Kingsley worked as like a, uh, he went to, he went into academia thinking that he could study uh, different spiritual traditions in an applied way mm. and found that academia has no place for that whatsoever, yeah. especially not in like religious studies and that, like you don't ever go to that level with it. Maybe now a little bit more so, but even now not, you know, even if people say they're doing it, they're not really doing it. Like mm. they're, they're approximating getting close to actually being able to, you know, apply the stuff. But in, in even then, a lot of times it's more into this sort of strip the occult out, strip the spiritual out, and mm. we're just going to look at sort of the mechanisms of it. But Peter Kingsley thought he could go in academia and study these things. You have to, as I found when I did my master's degree, you have to kind of sneak the weird stuff in through the yeah, back door, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is kind yeah, of what yeah. I did. And no mention yeah. that you ever had an experience or that you ever, you know, that you actually maybe like are drifting into that. So mm. Kingsley went in and like he found, so he dropped out of school and went and worked at like gas stations and worked mm. as a janitor and stuff. So maybe not gas stations, but he was a janitor. So like, um, yeah, you have to, you know, if you if you want to pursue it, like you either need to find a way to get paid to do it, or um, you need it's, to it's getting a budget again, isn't it? It's yeah, exactly the same thing. It's yeah, and the, the parapsychology goes through this stuff now, mm -hmm. where you know so much of the the research in the past, like, just sort of dead ends. Once the government funding goes out, and there were there were a handful over the past like century plus of of psychical studies psychic research and parapsychology there were a handful of very wealthy individuals <coughs> that either put up a trust you know stanford university is a good example the reason that stanford with sri becomes looking into that was that the stanford when he died actually or i think it was the son or something like that but the money that that led into the founding of stanford university mm. part of that was actually set aside for human potential research mm. and for psychic research 
um, I think it was it was actually for mediumship research, which is the big thing at like the you know in the early twentieth century was this idea of like can we contact our loved ones or whatever. So, but part of that money was Poseidon. It wasn't really used for that, which is a violation of the trust. So you know that Stanford, you see some of that stuff kind of sneaking in and that. But then you know like the Rhine research thing, like there was funding from um, Belk, who uh, founded. He was. Uh, um, I think it was Henry Belk, I think was his name, but the Belk family was known for department stores. Mm-hmm. So they had department store money. You think of Robert Bigelow, who's the most recent example, um, and well, he's actually not, I think everyone's uh, Skinwalker Ranch now would be a more recent example, but Bigelow, right? Like mm-hmm. makes his money on hotels, spends his money on UFO research and, and space stuff. And mm-hmm. why? Watch an interview with Bigelow. He's interested in it and it's kind of fun for him. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, he'll even say like I, the, on the on a recent New Thinking Aloud, he was like, "Yeah, I got bored with it." He was like a child, you know. Yeah. It's like this is my toy, and I've got enough money to play with it, and it's interesting, and it could help humanity. And more than anything, I want to play in the sandbox, right? So I'm going to toss the money in, and I'm going to play, you know, these games. You also see that with gurus as well, don't you? Like gurus, especially yeah. back in the like nineteenth, early twentieth century, like gurus would become they'd they'd have a rich patron or a yeah, rich you follower. Have, you still have yeah, that. Yeah, you, have yeah. you have to. How are you going to sit and meditate all day? <laughs> your lights. How are you going to build know? your ashrams? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. like really. I mean, that's that's seriously. That's that's it. You know. And there's there's writing. I mean, like if you go back to actual like you know. Uh, if you go back to the the writings of of traditional teachers, mm-hmm. they mention this kind of thing, you know. Especially, you know, maybe not so much in like a Christian tradition or like Judaism, or maybe even Islam, but definitely in in some of the Buddhist stuff. And that they talk about courting patronage in order to. I mean, that's that's the whole history of Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. They they went in, they got in with the with the people they converted the people i mean that's the history of christianity too right constantine scientology i mean scientology is built on celebrities isn't it celebrity celebrity income and yeah yeah it's uh it's 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 how you do it you know you do it and then then with this stuff then like you get a a different sort it looks weirder because it doesn't have this grand unified like we're we're doing it for god you know or, or whatever that sense is um we're doing it for the divine or the divine humanity in, in these things with the psychic stuff, you're doing it for human potential, mm-hmm. you know, so it becomes a little bit more like corporate friendly where it can be more corporate on the front end. You can have a product, you can have an app, you can have whatever, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but yeah, it's, you know, you, you can't do it without that stuff. And, and like you said, Monroe is an interesting example where he himself was his own funder through, yeah. his, through his efforts in that, you know, and through selling the shares and his, his, stations and that kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting stuff anyway thank you so much for giving us some of your time again it's uh always always a pleasure and i'm i'm sure we'll be talking again shortly for yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah.